grab a Bible and turn with me to Romans. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find that on page 942. You might be surprised that I didn't say Revelation chapter 12. Since we finished Revelation 11 last Sunday... For several reasons, though, I've planned a couple of messages on the the doctrine of justification and its relationship to good works. Uh, One reason is simple. I need more time to study Revelation 12 and 13. But during that time, I also wanted to equip you on a particular subject. Uh, I chose justification because in talking with some of the newer believers here, uh, I notice a need for growth and understanding this, this precious doctrine and, uh, and hopefully get to preach it to you afresh. Uh, others of you who have been walking with Jesus longer, um, perhaps you've felt the burden of conviction of sin by the Holy Spirit and uh, you need a fresh reminder of the blessing that God declares in justification Uh, Others of you are fluent in justification, but you haven't yet connected the dots to many ways that that justification affects relationships. We also live in a social media age where there seems to be an endless preoccupation with people trying to prove themselves uh, or people finding new ways to heap guilt upon you. Five reasons you should be doing blank. Eight ways you're failing your child. Your silence is violence. And on the the post's roll, is there any good news for a world so inundated with, with guilt? And then finally, I'm concerned that some have divorced justification from their union with Christ and the fruits of that reviving relationship. And that's why I want to talk about justification. Um, We'll we'll look at that latter part, the the fruits of that reviving relationship, in a a couple weeks from now when we look at James chapter 2. But those are the reasons I want to talk about justification. More specifically, though, today I want to focus on the basis of our justification. In Scripture, justification is a legal term. When speaking about God saving us, it has to do with God making a legal declaration in his court of law. It has to do with God declaring a verdict of righteous on those who in themselves are sinful or ungodly. But if a right if he's a right if God is a righteous judge, how can it be that God ever declares ungodly people righteous? As some have objected, wouldn't that be a legal fiction? Wouldn't that be a false judgment? Wouldn't wouldn't we remove a judge if he called guilty people righteous? 
On what grounds can God render such a verdict on ungodly people like ourselves? Well, he does it by imputing his own righteousness to those who believe in Jesus. And that is our subject today. I'm narrowing the focus from from the more general declaration of Uh, that we find in justification to its basis in imputation. Now, imputation is is a word that builds off the legal and accounting words in Scripture. Sometimes impute has to do with crediting to someone what's truly present. So we can think of Phinehas when, when he stood up for what's right and God counted his act as righteousness. But other times, impute has to do with crediting to someone what belongs to another. Crediting to someone what belongs to another, like when Paul asks Philemon to count Onesimus' debt as his own. And it's this second use that helps us understand what God does for the Christian in, in imputation. He credits to us what belongs to another, namely Christ. So let's see this doctrine developed from, from three passages. The first is Romans chapter 5, verse 12, 18, and 19. I, I want us to see that Christ is our new Adam whose obedience justifies those united to him. Christ is our new Adam whose obedience justifies those united to him. Paul is dealing with how God reconciles sinners to himself through Jesus. And verse 12 then says... Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and that's Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And we expect then something like, so also righteousness entered the world through one man. But he he stops, he pauses. You have a, a hyphen there probably in your translation kind of breaks off to talk about why death reigns over all people. And he goes on to make the point in verses 13 to 14 that death reigns over all people even before the law of Moses existed. Death reigns because of our connection with Adam. That's the point he's making. Death reigns because of our connection with Adam. No one after Adam's sin escapes this problem. Even worse, we're born with this problem. Adam is our representative and we inherit guilt from him. And the proof that we inherit guilt from Adam is that we're all dying. So when Adam sinned, God views all of us as having sinned in Adam and are thus guilty and deserving condemnation. Look at verse 18, when he says, One trespass led to condemnation for all men. One trespass, that of Adam, led to condemnation for all men. Our problem is not simply that we sin, though that is a problem. Our deepest problem is that we are, by nature, sinners. 
We're guilty because of our connection with Adam. That is our biggest problem. And if that's our problem, how can we, make, how can we be made right with God? Well, Paul has already explained in chapter 3, verse 20, that it can't be by good works. He says in chapter 3, verse 20, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. Nobody's going to be made right with God by their works. We need another representative. We need a new Adam who obeys where the first Adam failed and where we all fail. And that's who we get in Jesus Christ. Verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. And that is the solution. By the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. What earns us a right standing with God? It is not our own obedience. It is Christ's life of obedience that climaxes in the cross. That is what justifies. In other words, Christ obeyed not only to become our pardon, he also obeyed to become our perfection. Christ's perfect obedience is the basis for our justification. And that means it is not a so-called legal fiction. It is not a false judgment, as our Catholic neighbors might object. In the words of J.I. Packer, God reckons righteousness to us not because he accounts us to have kept the law personally, but because he accounts us to be united to one who kept it representatively. And that is Jesus, our new Adam. I'm referring to him as our new Adam, by the way, because of what Paul says at the end of verse 14. When he says, uh, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So Adam himself served as a type, an, expecta- an anticipation of a new Adam, Christ himself. Now, some may object here, you know, by saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. Nothing in the passage suggests that Christ's righteousness is something given to us given to us in justification, even some Protestants will object this way, especially those who are embracing the the new perspective on Paul. Uh, But verse 17 helps us here when it says, if because of the one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness Reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So the righteousness, and in this passage, that is Christ's obedience that he's been developing, is a gift we receive. 
And then there's also the parallel logic in chapter 5, that just like it was not our personal sins, but our connection to Adam's sin that condemns us, it is also not our personal obedience, but our connection to Christ's obedience that justifies us. God imputed Adam's sin to humanity and thus declared all people guilty, but if we trust in Christ, God imputes Christ's obedience to us and thus declares as righteous. All right, second passage that supports imputation. 2 Corinthians 5, chapter 21. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. In this passage, we learn of the great exchange, which is where God imputes our sins to Christ and Christ's righteousness to us. Start with verse 18. He says, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. You hear the accounting language there again. Not, but it's in the negative sense, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now, if we look through this uh, verse 19, what is our problem? Our problem is that we have trespasses Trespass is another word for sin. It has to do with violating a moral standard. In this case, it's violating God's moral standard, and that means we deserve punishment. It also means that our trespasses separate us from God. Otherwise, what's the point of the the reconciliation, right? There's a separation that needs to be overcome from God. So we have condemnation and separation. That's what happens when God holds our trespasses against us. But here's the good news. In Christ, God reconciles the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. This is bookkeeping language again. Basically, we're, uh, Paul is saying, you are, you are not just in the red. You're like really, really, really in the red. In terms of God's righteousness, you have none. Your side of the line shows nothing but sin and debt. And even though that's our condition, God doesn't count those sins against the people he reconciles to himself. Now, how can he do that as a righteous judge? Well, verse 21 answers, For our sake, God made Christ to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Read that again. For our sake, God made Christ to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Isaiah 53 foretold of a suffering servant 
And that suffering servant would do two things for us. One, he, he would, the, the Lord would lay on this servant, it says, the iniquity of us all. Okay? And so, so he would be like the sacrifice in the Old Testament where the sins of the people were transferred to the animal before it was slaughtered. That was one, that's one thing the suffering servant was going to do. The second thing the suffering servant was going to do, he would make, this is Isaiah 53, 11, he would make many to be accounted righteous. We see two things, taking away sin and positively accounting people righteous. And Paul is pointing out these two realities in the work of Jesus. Some as Some have called it the great exchange. All of our sins upon Jesus for all of his righteousness on us. This is the answer to how the righteous judge doesn't count our trespasses against us and declares us righteous and upholds his own righteousness in doing so. It's also what Paul means when... It says that God put forward Christ as a propitiation in his blood that he might be both just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. God makes Christ to be sin, not meaning that Christ himself becomes a sinner on the cross, but meaning that our sin gets imputed to Christ. Christ becomes our sin without himself being inherently sinful. And that shapes how we understand the next line. We become the righteousness of God without ourselves being inherently righteous. Meaning the righteousness is outside of us. It belongs to Christ. But God counts it as ours. In ourselves, we are still sinful people. We have nothing inherently righteous about us, but by imputing Christ's righteousness to our account, God thinks of us as righteous. Now, we need to be careful here when we talk about this, even in our Reformed circles, because we we can go sideways. It is not that the righteousness, this, this righteousness gets disconnected from the person of Christ and given to us. The righteousness is in union with Christ. In union with Christ himself that God counts us this way. So it's not that the righteousness gets personally disconnected from Christ and given to us, but that in union with Christ himself, God views his righteousness as belonging to us. It's like an indebted poor woman who then marries a generous, rich king, and they become one flesh with him. Not only does he clear all of her debts, but he also gives her the treasures of his kingdom. In union with Christ, God not only clears our debt, he gives us the treasures of his righteousness. But we are married to him, not just the benefits of him. Does that make sense? 
It's all about him, the person, being united to him. All right, one more passage, Philippians 3.9. Philippians 3.9. We need a righteousness that isn't our own. We need a righteousness that isn't our own. Paul is showing the supreme value of Christ. But he does this first by listing many of, uh, many of the reasons that he could boast. Verse 5, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So anybody who observed Paul's life would have said, man, Paul is a consistently religious guy. Relationally, he's upright. He's got a zeal for God and the things of God before people. He's he's blameless. But what Paul goes on to say is, yeah, all that, it was a pile of mess. Paul needs a superior righteousness, one that only God gives. Look at verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. It's like a pile of manure. That's what I count them. I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul is not trading one inner virtue for another inner virtue here. He wants the person of Jesus Himself. Why? Because Christ's righteousness makes all of his law-keeping look like a pile of manure. He needs God's righteousness, which is found in Christ himself. He needs Christ's obedience. And he gets that, he says, on the basis of faith. Faith is not what makes us righteous. Faith is not what makes us righteous. Faith unites us to Christ, who makes us righteous. Faith is not the basis of your justification. It is the instrument that unites us to the basis of our justification who is Christ himself. What is faith? Well, here, it is renouncing all self-confidence before God and placing your confidence solely on Christ as your only hope. When we stand before God and he asks what makes us fit for eternity with him, our only answer is Christ. It's not 
Well, I was a good person most of the time. I, I was a really faithful deacon. I was a great evangelist. I was a pretty good parent, husband, wife. It's not I anything. It's Christ is all. Faith always looks away from self to Christ. That's what faith does. You remember the parable Jesus told about the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18? Only one of those men went home justified. And it wasn't the man trusting in all the things that he viewed God working through him. That's what blows me away about that that parable. The Pharisee thanked God. He thanked God for working in him and making him not like those other sinners over there. And for placing his confidence in that, he went home condemned. When we turn the results of God's grace in our lives into reasons for self-glory, we condemn ourselves. It was the man who couldn't even lift his eyes to heaven. And asked God to have mercy on him. He went home justified. Even the good things that God works in us cannot become the object of our faith. I talked to some of you in your struggle with sanctification. And your problem is that you're, you're, you're struggling with doubts and assurance. Because all of the object of your faith is your goodness. I'm not doing enough goodness. I don't see this kind of stuff. And you keep looking there. And the Bible's saying, look to Jesus. Those things will come when you're looking at Jesus. Jesus is your assurance. Christ must be all, period. Now, I'll stop there with those three three passages. There are others, and we will talk about the role works play in relation to justification when we get to James 2. But I want to stop there, and uh, what I want to do now is contrast imputation with Catholic teaching on justification by infusion. Sometimes the, the true gospel stands out all the more clearly when you contrast it with a distortion. When the Catholic Church refers to justification, they mean God's act of making someone righteous. Not, not declaring someone righteous, but making them righteous. Uh, justification is a process in the Catholic Church. For Rome, it's about God conforming us to his righteousness until we ourselves become inwardly righteous. In this process, justification comes through the sacraments of the church. It begins with baptism, 
Through baptism, God infuses grace into the soul, which then places the individual in a state of justification. But baptism is just a starting point. It's also possible to sin in such a way that removes you from this state of justification. The grace that is infused to you at baptism can be lost if you commit things like mortal sins. So, immorality, outbursts of anger, idolatry, and so forth. Committing mortal sins means that you lose your state of justification. And that leads then to the sacrament of penance. In order to restore yourself to the state of justification, you do penance. And you must especially perform the works of satisfaction that is prescribed by the priest, such as good deeds for the poor and fasting and prayer and so forth. And by performing these works of satisfaction, a a person merits God's favor such that God restores that person to the state of justification. Now, we don't want to get them wrong. All of this still includes faith. Rome teaches that faith is necessary for any of this to count. The issue is that Rome does not view faith as a sufficient condition to be justified. It is necessary, but it is not sufficient. Faith must be accompanied by works, like those in satisfaction, to maintain or to even restore yourself to the state of justification. And so we see kind of three basic pieces here to Rome's teaching. Justification is a process instead of a declaration. It involves infusing grace that eventually makes a person inherently righteous as long as they cooperate. And since faith is is not sufficient, we also need works to maintain our right standing with God. Now, is that good news? Is it good news that God will not accept me until I prove myself to be inherently righteous? Is it good news that I can somehow have faith, but if I die with any sins, I must go through the fires of purgatory until I possess an inherent righteousness of my own? Now compare that to what we saw earlier in Paul's letters. In Christ, God declares us righteous the moment we put our faith in Christ. And God does this not based on a righteousness that we inherently perform and cooperate with, but on everything that Christ has already performed and finished completely. And all the righteousness that Christ is, it becomes ours by faith alone. That's a far better gospel. That's far better news. Now, I don't want to just correct and point out what's false. I also want to construct how we how the true gospel of imputation impacts our own worship, community, and mission. Doctrine is for life. Theology is for mission. So let's begin with imputation and worship. I failed to get these on the screen for you, but hopefully I'll go slow enough you can get them. Imputation 
and worship. Imputation is our only hope for worship. There is no access to God's presence without Christ's righteousness. Like Joshua the high priest in Zechariah chapter 3, we need our filthy clothes removed and new clothes given to us so that we can stand in the presence of God. And God gives us those clothes in Christ. Through Christ, we can approach God freely in worship. Through Christ, Ephesians tell us that you're accepted with God, that he has opened the way for you to approach his throne with boldness and confidence. You can pray freely without fearing condemnation. And when you sin, you can go to him, trusting that you will stand on the last day, not by your perfect obedience, but by the obedience of Jesus. And that should cause you to sing, to worship, to sing the songs we sang earlier. Imputation also keeps us humble about our works. Even your best deeds don't measure up to what you already possess in Christ. Our boast will always be in the Lord, no matter how many good things we perform. Imputation also keeps us from robbing Christ of glory by living as if his righteousness isn't enough, as if I must do more to add to his work. To live this way is to rob glory from Christ's obedience. It is to diminish the obedience that God vindicated before the world in his resurrection. And when we get to James chapter 2, again, a couple weeks from now, we'll also see how imputation leads to obedience and good works, which is a major part of our worship. Obedience flows from a heart that's amazed that God would love us this much as to hide us in his son's righteousness. If we truly possess it, or better, if he truly possesses us, then we will live in accordance with his glorious righteousness. Imputation also affects community. Let's look at imputation and community. I want you to consider a couple of examples. Uh, The parable that I mentioned earlier of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Jesus told this parable, Luke 18, verse 9. Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Self-righteousness breeds contempt. And where there's contempt, it's a little hard to have community. Or uh, take another example, Galatians chapter 2. Remember when Peter is eating with the Gentiles, but when the circumcision party shows up, he drifts away from the Gentiles Paul has to come and rebuke Peter and re-preach justification to say, this gospel message of justification doesn't produce what you just did. Paul has to explain how it creates table fellowship. So contempt 
and disunity. That's what self-righteousness will always produce. Imputation kills self-righteousness. And it unites the community around Jesus. Because none of us has the ground to boast. Nobody has room to look down their nose at the other. Everyone needs the same righteousness. And in Christ, everyone has the same righteousness. None of us possess more of Christ's righteousness than the other. The starting place for community, no matter how we might offend each other, is Christ and his righteousness. You've got to put on new lenses in order to see that. You've got to put on new lenses in order to see your brother and sister this way, no matter who they are. You know, let's say a, a fellow Christian offends you and seeks reconciliation. Can you not just forgive them, but also see them as made righteous in Christ? Can you disagree over a non-gospel issue, method of education, medicine, food, some aspects of culture, musics, po- music, politics, and walk away with the same fondness that God has for them in Christ? Your standing before God is just as good as theirs. What about conflict in marriage? You know those fun times when your, crowd, when, your, when your spouse corrects your sin? We have the little defense attorney in here. Best friends, oh, now we're going at it in the courtroom, right? Five minutes ago. Best friends, now you're my enemy. And I will defeat you, and I will prove that I am innocent. What's really going on? We're trying to justify ourselves. Imputation works wonders in marriage. If God already accepts you in Christ, goodness, lay down your, your, lay down your defenses. Admit your wrongdoings. You're freed to apologize. I mean, think of the cross works wonders in marriage and all of our relationships because the cross says two things about you. You're way more sinful than you think you are. That's one thing it says. It required the death of God's own son. But it also says you're more loved than you will ever be. Because in Christ, he, in the cross and through the cross, he gave you the righteousness of Christ. And so if that's, if that's where you are, <laughs> good let, goodness, let that free you to just, yeah. You saw sin in my life, and I'm probably way worse than that. But I'm righteous in Christ, and that frees me to listen to you. Humbly receive your correction. Receive the rebuke with humility. It also frees us to confess our sins and to take confidence in God's forgiveness. Or maybe you're at a ball game 
and your child starts acting up, and then he keeps acting up, like to the point it gets embarrassing acting up, and you start wondering what the others are thinking, and you begin fearing everybody else's judgment about your parenting, and patience now became impatience in that last five seconds. This little one is smearing my reputation as the good parent that I am. Come on, you know you feel it in the hallways over here during dig. Right? Everybody's got syrup on their collar and running in here. And every, you're, what do people think about me? And without knowing it, Satan is chipping away at your trust in Christ's righteousness. Look, how does imputation affect you in that moment? You will not stand before God based on your superior parenting skills. Other people's opinions are also not your ground for justification. Christ is all that matters, and that frees you to be patient in that moment with your child and to find your acceptance with God, not with man. Or maybe you've made decisions in the past that weren't good, and you carry, your, you carry the, the consequences, you carry the regrets of those decisions, even as a Christian. You still carry these around. And they haunt you, and they, they don't go away, even though you try to hide them, and you feel ashamed and unclean, like an outcast at times. And in all these situations, our response is to preach imputation to one another. Right? We need to tell each other the days ahead of you need not be filled with despair. You have Christ's righteousness. You have everything before God that you need. You're not just forgiven. You have God on your side. Christ is all, brother. Christ is all, sister. And keep pointing each other there. Our God is the kind that comes to two individuals in their shame, hiding their nakedness. And he comes to them and makes them clothes. That's the kind of God we have. Preach him to one another. And then finally, imputation also affects mission. Imputation affects mission. It compels mission. Everybody in the world has the same problem. We're all born sinners in Adam. How do we know that? Death. Isaiah describes death like a veil that's cast over all nations. Death proves that we're connected with Adam's sin and guilt. That's true of everybody in the world. But we have the good news that in Christ God justifies the ungodly, leading to eternal life. Nobody else has this gospel. Nobody. All other religions are based on your obedience. In Hinduism, one seeks to escape the cycle of reincarnation through works, knowledge, and devotion. In Islam, you know, they have submission along with its five pillars, profession, prayer, alms, fasting, pilgrimage. And yet even then, there's never assurance that your submission is enough. In Judaism, the major problem is exile, and the solution is returning to Yahweh through Torah-keeping. Buddhism has the Noble Eightfold Path, 
of a right view, a right resolve, a right speech, a right action, a right livelihood, a right effort, right mindfulness, and a right concentration. Many tribal religions have their ongoing rituals to keep the gods happy, satisfied. Mormonism will say that Jesus died to forgive your sins, but passage to eternal life in the celestial kingdom, that comes only to those with faith and your obedience to the laws of the gospel. You exhausted yet? Now, it's also true that none of these religions share Christianity's view of our, of our radical sinfulness. But just look around and do some history and read the news and honestly assess your own motives and thought life. The Christian claim of man's radical sinfulness squares with reality. In Adam, we are truly bad. Even our best works are shot through with mixed motives and limited abilities. For anyone to say that salvation is based on your works just plunges man further into despair. And here's the far better news of Christianity. In the moment you're united to Christ by faith, God not only takes away your sins, he also imputes Christ's perfect obedience to your account. We're saved by Jesus' works, not our own. We know that his works are perfect. He is without sin. Based on Jesus' obedience, God declares us righteous in his sight. That's where our assurance rests, in Christ and his righteousness. What good news that we get to proclaim to a world that is inundated with guilt and who are weary of trying to prove themselves. Social media is filled with people and politicians who have mastered the art of heaping guilt on everybody that's not like them. There's a constant stream that says you're not good enough and you're not measuring up. And on top of that, just of the major religions I mentioned earlier, there's 4.6 billion people preaching to that crowd of people that salvation is still based on your inherent goodness and your obedience. And into that world... Christianity has the one message, the gospel of the imputation of Jesus' righteousness. That is the good news. Into that world, we get to preach that our God justifies the ungodly by faith alone in Christ alone. In the death and resurrection of Jesus, we have the only good news for the world. So proclaim it far and wide. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the work of Christ. Pick one lost person that you know and pray for them this week and ask God to open a door for you to share the goodness of Christ's imputation with them. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that in Christ we can stand before you righteous. I pray that you would help us grow to love this truth and that this truth would free us to live more faithfully for you. Open our mouths in declaring it to others and also make it a message we regularly remind one another about. 
You are good. Thank you for the solid rock of Jesus' righteousness. In his name we pray. Amen.